You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Father, as we focus our attention and our hearts and our minds in your word, Father, we pray that your spirit would meet with us now. Lord, give us understanding. Help us to see how these commands that you gave to Israel for this year of Sabbath, this year of Jubilee, Lord, how it points to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the rest and prosperity that you have guaranteed for your children, those who have been cleansed, those who have been washed, those who have been adopted into your family through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would give us understanding of your word and grow us and mature us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Above all, may he be glorified this morning as we gather and worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in 1886, Leo Tolstoy, famous Russian novelist, wrote a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? How Much Land Does a Man Need? So the, the story features, a, the, the protagonist of the story is a peasant named Pahom. And Pahom, he worked hard, he didn't have much, but, but he wanted to kind of raise up the, the social ladder, so to speak. He wanted to get more and more land, so he started working harder and harder so that he could purchase land and, and make more, uh, more money off of the land. And so he, he had some success, and his, his land began to grow and grow and grow, but he just was never satisfied with the land that he possessed. He wanted more and more and more land. And so one day he heard of the Bashkirs. The Bashkirs owned a huge amount of land, acres and acres and acres, just tons of it. And they approach Pahom and, and they make him kind of an unusual offer. They say, well, for 1,000 rubles, he could take some spades and he could go and mark off as much land as he could in one day. And as much as he could mark off in that one day, he could have it for just 1,000 rubles. Sounds like a great deal. I wish we could find some land for that cheap, right? That's, that's wonderful. Uh, but, but there was only one condition. He had to make it back at his starting point before sunset, or he forfeited his money and he didn't receive any of the land. So Pahom, just his heart filled with excitement. He was overjoyed at this incredible opportunity. It could literally change his life. And, and so he set off the next day and he walked and, and traced a, a long distance, started sprinting out and, and tried to got a, get as far out as he could get with those spades, marking the land that he wanted to have. And so he began to run and eventually, of course, the sun began to set. And as he begins to see that that time was quickly approaching, he said, well, I, I got to head back. And so he realized that he was running out of time. So he was sprinting and sprinting faster and faster and faster, as fast as his legs could carry him to get back to the starting point. And he made it just in time back to the starting line, only to find that that celebration came to an end rather fast because he immediately dropped dead from exhaustion as soon as he made it back. So the celebration came to an end. And so Pahom's servant buried his body in an ordinary grave about six feet in length, thus answering the story's question. How much land does a man need? Six feet. 
See, like Paul Holm, we can easily find ourselves enslaved, enslaved by the pursuit of possessions. And the Old Testament frequently addresses the issue of land and property. In many ways, that's what chapter 25 is all about, about the land and the management of the land. And so currently Israel is at Sinai. Remember, this is where they are. They're in the wilderness, they're in Sinai, and they're receiving the law of the covenant from the Lord so that they might be prepared to enter and receive the inheritance that the Lord has promised them, this promised land that they've been waiting for and yearning for, and that the Lord is graciously giving them, this land that flowed with milk and honey and would bring wealth and blessing to the whole nation of Israel. However, God is is really clear, as we'll find out in this text, that God was to be their God, not the land. God was their God, not the land. They must worship the Lord. Yahweh, they must worship him, not the wealth that the land might bring them. That's a very important distinction. So in Leviticus 25, God provided instructions for Israel and how they are to handle the management of the promised land, the territory, the property. And as we will discover, as God tells us here in Leviticus 12, I don't know if you caught it, all of the land is God's land. He is the owner of the land, And as its owner, God legislated the use of the land. And so as we'll look at this passage, particularly through the lens of the new covenant and what's to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that these land promises in the Old Testament find their fulfillment ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the age. And these laws for the nation of Israel point forward to Christ and teach us about the Lord's gracious provision for his people. So in sum, here's the sermon summary this morning. The Lord provides, redeems, and restores the land for his people. He provides, redeems, and restores the land for his people. So let's talk about this first point this morning. The land rests, the Lord provides. The land rests, the Lord provides. We see this particularly in verse 1 through 7 of chapter 25. So the first verse indicates a change of location in the book of Leviticus. I don't know if you picked up on this when we read the text, because once the Lord took residence in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus and kind of at the beginning of Leviticus, we see that he, the Lord is speaking to his people from the tent of meeting. Remember the tabernacle was kind of like a portable Sinai. And so once the Lord took residence in the era, this is where the Lord's speaking from. But at the start of Leviticus 25, we see that the Lord is speaking from Mount Sinai. So this change of location most likely means that these chapters here in Leviticus and these last few chapters that we're going to look at, they were probably given earlier on Mount Sinai, but Moses decided to include them here at the end of Leviticus for thematic reasons and to end Leviticus with reminders of the blessings that would come from their obedience to the covenantal law. So chapter 25 prepares Israel to receive their inheritance. It prepares them for life in the promised land. And just as Israel was to Sabbath each week, the land must also Sabbath every seven years. So look look at verse 3 of chapter 25. The Lord says, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. So this was a command for the whole nation, all of Israel, 
to rest the land for a year. And this required, as you might imagine, great trust. In the ancient economy, wealth came from the possession of land. Indeed, it was the only way to really achieve wealth in the the ancient world. Wall Street didn't exist, right? So there was no stock exchange. The, The way you accumulated wealth and prosperity was by having land. And the more land you had, that means the more crops you had, and therefore the more wealth you could have. So shutting down the farm for a whole year required active trust from God's people for the Lord's provision. For a year, Israel could not plant a thing. They had to trust in the Lord's provision and could only eat what the land naturally produced. So the seventh year rest for the land was good for the land. It allowed time for the soil to replenish so that the land would stay prosperous, stay flowing with milk and honey. However, the land's rest reminded the people, though, that it was God alone who provided for their needs, not the promised land. God is their provider, not what they possess. So they need the, the, the need for this trust in the Lord's provision really compounded when you get to the idea of the year of Jubilee, which was a sort of super Sabbath. It happened every 50 years and after seven cycles of seven years. So uh, I know math is hard. I know a lot of kids are going back to school tomorrow. So, so try to keep up with me here. Seven times seven is 49, right? And then 49 means the next year would be 50. So year 49 was the end of a seven-year cycle, which means that it was a Sabbath year. And then the year of Jubilee was also considered another Sabbath year. So that would be two straight years, year 49 and year 50 of no harvest at all. The Lord would provide, he says, in such abundance the, the sixth year that they would have enough for the Sabbath years. Look at verse 20 through 21, just a little bit ahead in our passage. You'll see what the Lord tells you. You might have that question. And if you are to say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop. And then the Lord says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. You see, God, God expected his people's obedience to the Sabbath of the land. That was his command according to his law. And that command required trust in the people's hearts to trust that the Lord would provide them with food. The Lord would provide them with nourishment. Just as Israel Israel right now is is eating manna from heaven, once they get in the promised land, there's going to be prosperity, there's going to be wealth, there's going to be crops, there's going to be fruitfulness. But those Sabbath years served as recurring reminders that no, it is the Lord alone that provides for the needs and the nourishment of his people. And Jesus affirms this same sort of trust in the provision of God in the New Testament, doesn't he? You can flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 6, and you remember this wonderful passage of of Jesus talking about how we ought not to be anxious. You can flip there. I'm going to read it for us. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. This is is Jesus' words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You see, we have to, to first, as Jesus tells us, to put our trust in the Lord for the provision of our needs. And we do that, Jesus says, not by being anxious, not by worrying, not by taking matters into our own hands, but we do it by seeking first God and his kingdom. And as we make the Lord and his kingdom a priority in our life, particularly in our financial life, that act of trust, of prioritizing God's kingdom in your budget means that you are trusting in the Lord's provision for your needs. Giving ought to hurt a little bit. Cause you to say, well, it's going to be a little tough to buy the groceries we need this week. It ought to make you feel an act of trust in the Lord's provision. And as we seek the Lord, we remind ourselves as we're prioritizing his kingdom, yes, he will take care of my needs. Yes, God will provide for me. And as we value God above our needs, we place our trust in him for our provisions. So our economy is very different than Israel's. Wealth in Israel's day meant land and livestock. And the primary purpose of those was just to have something to eat at the end of the day. Most of us don't have to worry about having something to eat at the end of the day. And if you do, come find me. We'll help you out. But, but in our day, wealth is signified by, by salaries and stock options. But even still, just like Israel, and just like Jesus tells us from the Sermon on the Mount, God is asking us to trust him in our needs as we prioritize him in our finances. So the prosperity gospel has, has wrecked the church in, in too many ways to count. And so the prosperity gospel teachers, if you haven't heard of these yahoos before, they, they, they kind of teach that the more you, you give to God, the more blessings than you can name and claim for yourself. And most often those blessings that they talk about are, are clothes and cars and vacation houses and, and American materialism. So we, we have to reject this, this false gospel of materialism and the, the devilish swindlers that so often prey upon the poor. However, for those of us that reject the prosperity gospel, I do think that there's a tendency in our hearts to overreact and to swing to an unbiblical view of giving. So we might see the, the shenanigans, and that's what they are, shenanigans of these, these prosperity gospel peddlers, and we might, might say to ourselves, well, you know, faith in Christ isn't about giving, and God doesn't need my money anyway, so why bother giving it? And that reaction is dangerous because of how nearly right it is, how closely right it is. Yes, you're right. Faith in Christ is about God's generosity, not about my generosity. And it's about God's provision of my need, not me trying to earn my salvation through my donations. And yes, you're right. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need one penny of your bank account. He owns a cattle upon a thousand hills. 
He doesn't need your dollars any more than he needs you in heaven. He is completely self-sufficient. But yet Jesus is constantly warning us of the connection between our money and our hearts. And we have to be careful because we cannot let the bad theology of the prosperity gospel justify our stinginess and our lack of trust in God for our daily provision. Don't become a fiscal antinomian. So, so why? Why does God want us to give our offerings as we seek his kingdom first to support the work of the church and gospel ministry around the world? Why did God require Israel to give not only their offerings throughout the year, which they are doing, by the way, but also to miss out on the land's wealth that might be produced every seventh year? And, and here's the reason why. God wants his people to love him and worship him above our wealth and possessions. That's why. So think about Israel for a moment. Israel hit the ancient world's equivalent of the jackpot. The Egyptians abused them. The Egyptians kept them poor as landless slaves in Egypt. And now God had rescued them and brought them out of that slavery. And now he was bringing them into a wonderful and prosperous land that overflowed with, with milk and honey. And as they prepared to enter this land, God wanted his people to worship him, to trust in him, not the land. So the pagan Canaanites, who are the current residents of that land in Israel's, uh, at the time of Leviticus, you know, they had invented a pantheon of deities to worship, all connected to the land in some way. So they had a fertility god named Baal. They had a harvest god named Dagon. They had a river god named Bahor. They had a sea god named Yam. They, they took the land and they deified it and they worshiped it and they sacrificed to it. And as Israel is going to capture the land in the conquest, God expected his people to worship him alone as their God. He is their God. He is the Lord of land and sea. All the earth belongs to the Lord. And so Israel must trust in the Lord for their provision, not in the land itself. So the, the business world uses a term called opportunity cost. I learned this in my business minor from my undergraduate. But, but it's the idea that, that you, what you get, uh, it's the idea of this exchange of what do I give up to do X instead of Y? That's that business concept. There's a trade-off of not doing something. And that's exactly what's going on for Israel. By obeying the Sabbath year, Israel was giving up the fruitfulness of the land for a year to obey God and to let the land rest. And Israel trusted in God's provision for them, not the land's provision. And I think the same goes for us in Christ. No matter our assets to our name, no matter the balances of our accounts, we have to worship Christ as our only treasure, our only joy, as our only provider. Whether you have a, a few hundred dollars to your name or whether you have multiple millions of dollars to your name, we have to all live with Jesus as our priority, as our one and only God. And we have to spend and give as the Spirit leads accordingly. So trust in Jesus alone, not your assets, not your stock options, not your bank accounts, not your 401k. Trust in Jesus for your provision and security and worship 
him. And on the flip side, we have to remind ourselves that those who have little don't think that wealth is going to solve the problem of your anxieties. If anything, they tend to complicate them. We don't just give when the coffers are full, but we give even out of our poverty. You see, as, as Jesus understands it, the quantity of the gift is relatively unimportant. The heart of the gift is everything. Giving in our need, even in our poverty, even if we don't have much, it's an act of trust in God's provision. And we don't give $10 and hope that it's going to come back a BMW. Now, that's that prosperity gospel rubbish. Now, we give as an act of faith, of trust, of prayerful dependence upon the Lord for our need. And so we trust the Lord. He will give us our daily bread. And we pray and we ask for the Lord to do just that. So just as the land, the Israel was to let the land rest, so may you and I rest in God's provision as we honor him with our generosity. So that leads us to the, the second point here, is that the land is sold, but the Lord redeems. The land is sold, but the Lord redeems. When Israel gets into the promised land, God would allot the land by tribe and by family. However, for a variety of reasons, a family might have to sell the land that the Lord would give them for money. So a bad harvest could ruin a struggling family. A tragic death could leave a grieving, grieving window with, widow with no one to, to work the land and needing money to support herself so she'd have to sell off the family, family land. Over the years, the land could constantly change hands between families based off of the circumstances of what happened. However, God told the people in verse 23, look at what God says here. This is a really important verse. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. You see, interestingly, the tribes of Israel had no right to possess the land that they dwelled in. It wasn't theirs. God was the Lord of the land, and he possessed the right of the land as its owners. Israel was simply a guest in the land, guest in God's land, God's home. And so the promised land became their home only because God graciously invited them to come and dwell in it. As Psalm 24, 1 reminds us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, this world and those who dwell therein. The earth belongs to the Lord. So as the owner of the land and as the king of the covenant people, God instituted the year of Jubilee every 50 years. At least once a generation, the land would return to its original family. So, so in a sense, when a person sold his land to another Israelite, it really wasn't being sold. He was really only leasing the land for whatever amount of years. So the buyer and seller, as we see kind of here figured out in Leviticus, the buyer and seller would, would calculate a fair price for the land based on the distance of time from the year of Jubilee. So if the time was short, if the year of Jubilee was just three or four years from now, then the price would be cheaper. If it was 49, 48 years, then the price would be more. It was based off of the number of harvests that were left upon the land before the year of Jubilee. So using anachronistic terms, these were not terms the Bible <laughs> uh, that the Israel was familiar with, but the system wasn't capitalism because no one really owned the land, nor was it socialism because the government didn't own the, the property. So no one owned the land, the government didn't own the property, God owned the property. So, so in our post-industrial society, we have 
long left the agrarian economy of the ancient world. So the economic system that God put in place for Israel would would not work today. So God isn't prescribing, this is the way we ought to do it here in America. No, that's, that's not what this is. This was for Israel in a specific situation, a specific economy. Because God's plan of Jubilee worked really well in the family-oriented and agricultural economy of the ancient world. Because what it did is it prevented real estate tycoons from monopolizing the land and then turning Israel into some sort of feudal system like we'll see develop in the Middle Ages. Well, at the same time, the 50-year jubilee discouraged laziness and promoted a strong work ethic among the population, while also at the same time providing a safety net for the poor through the practice of gleaning, through selling off of the family land, through selling yourself, as we'll see, even in indentured, indentured servitude. So in the whole economy of Israel, they were to show concern and care for one another. They were brothers. They were a family. So they were to be generous. They were to resist swindling or, or taking advantage of one another in this process of buying and selling the land. And at the 50-year mark, we see that the servants were redeemed and the land would go back to the original family. And it was a day of liberation. It was almost like a national economic reset. And this reset gave everyone an opportunity, but also preserved one of the key building blocks of society the preservation of the family. Family and land went so closely together in the ancient world. And so if the land is being sold off and people are having to, to serve other people, the families get spread apart and disconnected. And so in the year of Jubilee, families could return to their land together to be a family and to work together on their God-given land. So the day of Jubilee instituted the practice of neighbor love and tried to prevent greed from overtaking the nation. And it, it's interesting to think about these issues in light of our current economic debates here in America, because it's, it's fascinating. These debates are just now ramping up as we approach the 2020 uh, presidential election, and I'm sure it's going to get worse. But, but we have to remember, right, as we Christians think about our own economy, that there, the Bible just doesn't prescribe an economic model for the nation to follow. It's not what the Bible's about. But these laws that we see here are given by God for ancient Israel. And so I'm no economist, and even economists can't seem to make up their mind in figuring out the complexities of our ever-changing global economy. But I, I think Israel's practice of the year of Jubilee that God gave them helps us to see the balance of heart that we Christians have to try to wrestle through as we enter into the marketplace and even the political sphere. Because with all the debate going on right now between socialism and capitalism, we Christians, we have to think very carefully as we engage on these issues. So, so regardless of your economic positions on these matters, we have to realize, first and foremost, straight up, that there is no perfect economic system. At least not until King Jesus comes back and sets one up himself. So, so the reason for this, why is there no perfect economic system? Well, it's because of us. It's because of the corruption of sin. Humanity corrupts every system because we are fallen and corrupt. We just mar everything we touch in this fallen world. So socialism is a great idea in theory, but falls apart when those in power abuse their power and fail to redistribute the, the resources like they're supposed to. And capitalism is a great idea until those with money become lovers of money and manipulate the system to their own advantage. So as we Christians wrestle with these broader economic and political issues, we can't be naive and thinking that if our country just did it my way 
or my party's way, then we could achieve utopia. Everything would be great. Everything would be perfect. Instead, we ought to wrestle with the question, what economic system best curtails man's sinfulness and proclivity towards corruption? That's a very different question. And on that question, I think Christians can debate, we can struggle, we can extend grace to one another as we talk about these issues, even in our political differences. However, we can't fall victim to the parading peddlers of political punditry. As Christians, we don't believe in utopia. We believe in a king and a kingdom. And even so, come Lord Jesus. That is our hope. So the year of Jubilee doesn't demand for us any sort of economic model, but it does help us strike a balance as well between our tendency to demonize the wealthy or to demonize the poor. You see, when, when the wealthy and prosperous Israelites, when they, when they bought another family's land, they didn't do so because they were, were greedy and money hungry. That wasn't to be their motive, but rather they were, were helping another family who desperately needed money for their survival. And we're talking about not having food to eat. And so you'd starve to death. These, these are the sort of situations we're dealing with. So when, when a wealthy Israelite took on another Israelite as an indentured servant, it helped this man and his family. And so the poor then had their needs met through the dignity of hard work. And yes, people did become poor due to their own laziness. Go read the Proverbs and you'll find a few of those guys. Just as some wealthy people cheat and steal and manipulate and treat others unfairly. Both of those happen. But more often than not, what was happening in Israel in this ancient world is the poor became poor due to hardship, due to a bad harvest or death in the family. And so God intended the year of Jubilee to promote work and wealth, fairness and opportunity, ultimately to care for the poor and the hungry. So regardless of your political persuasion, I think we have to strike this balance in our hearts. It's a difficult one. Honoring the dignity of hard work for the glory of God and celebrating the prosperity that hard work often brings in our age, while at the same time promoting compassion and generosity to those who are in economic need and desperation. But as the Lord instituted the day of Jubilee, we see that he is the one who redeemed the land. Notice that it happens on the day of atonement. It's not by accident. The Lord is the one purchasing the land, freeing the land, redeeming the land. And so the poor would have a fresh start. In the same way, you and I, we also need a fresh start. And in Christ Jesus, we have been given a fresh start. Jesus provides us with redemption we need, redemption out of slavery, spiritual poverty, and sin. And that leads to the third point I want to stress this morning, is that the land impoverishes but the Lord restores. The land impoverishes, but the Lord restores. You see, as we prepare to talk about the redemption and restoration of the land that is ultimately going to happen in Christ, we have to address the issue of slavery for a moment and the laws associated with it in Leviticus 25, particularly verse 39 through 46, because this issue of slavery can, is one that really we have a hard time with understanding these laws, why are they here, why was slavery a practice in the nation of Israel? So in these verses, we see, a, it's important to understand what we're talking about. We see that an Israelite must not be sold into permanent slavery. Permanent slavery for an Israelite didn't exist. After all, God had delivered the people out of slavery. And so he didn't want them to return to it. So if an Israelite fell on hard times, he sold his land, and even then he ran out of money, 
he had to sell himself into servitude for survival. It was more like an indentured servant. And on the year of Jubilee, if he couldn't purchase his freedom before then, he was set free and retook possession of, of his family's land. So look at what God says in verse 43. We also see that Israel was not to treat each other ruthlessly. The abuse and harsh work Israel experienced in Egypt was not to be repeated in the promised land. So two questions you might be asking at this point. Well, first, were there permanent slaves or servants? And the answer is yes, there were, but they were from the nations surrounding Israel, not from the people of Israel themselves. And then the second, you might be asking, well, did these permanent servants go free in the year of Jubilee? And the answer is no, they didn't, but they served for life. So the, the word slave is, is difficult for us because our mind immediately goes to Roman slavery or more recently, American slavery and the American slave trade. And so when we see the word slave pop up in Leviticus 25, our minds immediately go to the type of slavery that dehumanized people, that removed all of their rights, and that treated slaves like human chattel, like livestock. And this type of slavery, which Israel experienced in, in Egypt, type of slavery that we've experienced even in our own country, that was strictly forbidden based off of Israel's laws. Because slaves possessed several important rights. So in Exodus 21, for example, slaves went free immediately if their masters ever abused them. If there was ever any abuse, the slave was free, no question asked. Slaves possessed the right to rest on the Sabbath. They were commanded and expected to rest just like every other Israelite would on the Sabbath. And God commanded Israel to treat their servants, even those outside of Israel, with, with generosity and compassion. So, so in short, Israelite law condemned the sort of slavery that comes to our mind when we think about American history. Now, another thing I have to remember about the Old Testament law, and this is very important as we dive into these law passages here in Leviticus and in other places, God often regulates what he refused to celebrate. I'll say that one more time, just make sure you got it. God often regulates what he refused to celebrate. So just because the law instructed Israel in slavery does not mean that God is endorsing the practice. So a good illustration for this comes from the teaching of the law on divorce. So if you go to Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus was pressed about the question of divorce from the law of Moses, which of course regulated how you get a certificate and how that process ought to go down. And after Jesus emphasized God's design for marriage, and after he reminds the people of, of the permanent of union that God intends between a man and a woman for a lifetime, he then says this, and this is fascinating. He says, it was because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I think the same principle that Jesus gives on divorce helps us understand these slavery laws. Because the world was fallen, slavery became a component, a fact of life in the ancient world. And so God regulated the practice. He instituted laws to help Israel limit the practice to regulate slavery. But just because these laws exist, do not express 
that this is God's intention, design, or desire for the world. You can see how God, even, in his redemptive plan in the Lord Jesus Christ, sowed the seeds that would eventually undo slavery. The the gospel, in a lot of ways, was like a ticking time bomb to blow up the institution of slavery eventually. So we see this even in the New Testament. When you read Paul's letters, when you look at Paul's letter to, to Philemon, as he tells them that the gospel makes the the master and the slave equal. That they're brothers in the gospel, in Christ. Century later, Christians would would grapple with the gospel, and particularly with the slave trade, and guys like William Wilberforce, based off of gospel convictions, helped end the slave trade. So in the ancient world, servitude was a factor of life in that broken world. Yes, the promised land overflowed with milk and honey. But guess what? The promised land was still fallen, still corrupted. The land could impoverish and ruin families who had to place themselves in servitude just for their survival, just so they could make it the next day. And so the year of Jubilee, this 50-year mark, points towards a day of redemption and restoration that comes on the day of Jesus Christ. On the day of Christ, the Lord will liberate the land from its bondage, of its thorns and thistles, of its barrenness and fruitlessness, the groaning that the earth moans now, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, will one day be ceased, will one day be done, and the Lord will liberate the world and we who dwell in it from the affliction of this barren land. The slavery of sin the destitution of broken economies, all of that is going away in Christ Jesus. And so the groaning of creation will cease as the Lord brings us into that land of rest, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. And on that day, the trumpets will sound just like it did on the day of Jubilee. The trumpets will sound in Christ will sound the eternal jubilee of redemption and restoration to be had in his kingdom. The perfect year, friends, of jubilee is coming, and it is coming soon. The Lord of the land, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come, and he will herald and bring with him the restoration of all things and the establishment of his kingdom. So I invite all of us this morning, particularly if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and receive deliverance from your sin, to receive the redemption that you most desperately need from your sin by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to turn from your sin, to come out of the slavery of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, who will redeem you and rescue you, and who will bring you into a good land of rest and of peace a land one day to be restored. You see, as we live in a world, as we live in a government, as we live in an economy marred by sin, may we take comfort in this, that restoration is coming. Restoration is coming and Jesus will bring it as the king. Our God is our provider. He is our redeemer. He is our restorer. And he will one day make all things new when that year of eternal jubilee dawns at the return of Christ. Let's pray together.